of work by one of the century's indisputable literary geniuses, Jorge Luis Borges. Uh, tonight's celebration of Borges in the centenary year of his birth arises out of and continues Penn's 20th Century Legacy series, in which diverse contemporary writers come together to share their unique perspective on literary forebears. In a 1978 lecture on immortality, Borges made a typically astute observation that, quote, immortality is in the memory of others and in the work we leave behind. He goes on to share a wonderful anecdote about how his mother told him that whenever he recited English poems, he did so in the very voice of his father, who had died in 1938, so that, quote, when I recite Shakespeare, my father is living in me. The people who have heard me will live in my voice, which is a reflection of a voice that was, perhaps, a reflection of the voice of its elders. Complicated piece of thinking. Borges, always the master of connectivity, proposed that, quote, what matters is that immortality is obtained in works, in the memory that one leaves in others, and concluded in his lecture with the embracingly humane view that, I believe in immortality, not in the personal, but in the cosmic sense. We will keep on being immortal. Beyond our physical death, our memory will remain, and beyond our memory will remain our actions, our circumstances, our attitudes, all that marvelous part of universal history. Borges's immortality, cosmic or otherwise, seems more assured than ever. And tonight, through his words and ideas, we have a chance to understand once more what we've inherited from him. Before giving the podium over to our host, Esther Allen, who, as the New York Times acknowledged yesterday uh, in a wonderful review, uh, is one of the magical translators responsible for bringing Borges's work into English, and the person who last spring called me up to say, Brad, we've got to throw a party for a birthday party for Georgie, uh, this, which, is, which is why we're here. Uh, I'd like on behalf of Penn to thank Viking Penguin for its generous help in sponsoring this event, in particular Paul Slovak, Catherine Court, who early on championed the idea of bringing out a collected Borges, and Michael Millman, who saw the project through. Also, many thanks to Andrew Wiley, Jeff Posternak, and Susan Berkholtz, as well as to Jen Bluestein, who helped make the evening possible. Thanks, as always, to the New School for providing us this auditorium for our birthday parties and other celebrations. And finally, thanks, of course, to our speakers. Um, it, I think it was announced that Mario Vargas Llosa would be here this evening, and uh, regrettably, he's on another continent, so he's not here. Uh, but he really wanted to be here, and he conveys that to all of us. And as well, uh, Claire Massoud fell ill this morning and could not come up from Washington but uh, generously, graciously, as always, uh, Maureen Howard has agreed to take her place this evening. And all of us are also very honored to welcome, although she may not be here yet, uh, I gather she's on her way, uh, Mr. Borges' widow, Maria Kodama, uh, who's flown in from Buenos Aires to be here this evening. So as the century fades, thank heavens, uh, Borges' illuminations don't seem to dim, but seem brighter than ever. And tonight, we'll explore some of the many reasons why the word Borgesian has become a part of our language. So now I give you Esther Allen.
Wow. Um, uh, I'd like to begin the evening before I introduce the first speaker uh, by uh, reading a passage from an essay Borges wrote about some of his favorite books by one of his favorite writers, who was H.G. Wells, um, writing about the early novels of H.G. Wells, including The Time Machine, The Island of Dr. Moreau, The Platner Story, The First Man in the Moon, and his all-time favorite, The Invisible Man. Bora has said, these are the first books I read. They may be the last. I think they must ultimately be incorporated, like the form of Theseus or of Ahasuerus, into the general memory of the species, and that they will multiply in scope beyond the waning of the renown of the man who wrote them, beyond the death of the language in which they were written. Um, in, a, in a place and time where the concept of that kind of duration is almost alien, uh, I think we can say, and I think the presence of all of you here tonight attests to the fact that uh, the waning of the renown of Borges, or certainly the death of the language in which he was written, is a painful idea, but perhaps most painful of all would be the end of the paradoxes that he stands for, his notion of the centrality of reading and of literature to the human experience. Um, so uh, it's incredibly gratifying to see so many people come out this evening to pay tribute to Jorge Luis Borges. Um, Borges also wrote uh, in a very famous line from Pierre Menard, the author of the Quixote, one of his most famous stories. Uh, with respect to Cervantes, he said, fame is a form of incomprehension and perhaps the worst. <laughs> um, I hope that uh, we're, we won't be expressing a bad kind of incomprehension in our apprehension of him tonight, but I cite that phrase uh, also in reference to the people who will be speaking this evening, um, who have all been subject to that form of incomprehension and therefore uh, require very little introduction. <laughs> um, but uh, I'll introduce them nevertheless. Uh, the first speaker of the evening is Paul Oster, uh, known to you all as a novelist, filmmaker, essayist, anthologist, poet, and last but I hope not least, translator. <laughs> um, his works are far too numerous to enumerate, but they include the n famous novels of the New York Trilogy, the screenplay of the film Smoke, he, was, he directed the film Lulu on the Bridge, and most recently he published a memoir entitled Hand to Mouth. And his work is also subject to another sort of distinction, a kind of unusual distinction, which I became aware of uh, the other evening at the Barnes & Noble on Union Square. Uh, as my eye traveled past Jane Austen on the shelf, I came to a little sign that said, for the works of Paul Auster, please see the cashier on the first floor. So, <laughs> so I thought, censorship, <laughs> what is this? And of course, I had to go see the cashier on the first floor to find out what was going on. And there, behind the shoulder of the cashier, I could only just sort of dartingly catch glimpses of it, was a little library of authors whose works have one thing in common. Uh, they are the favorites 
of the impecunious, the unscrupulous, and the kleptomaniac. <laughs> Paul, Paul's books are among the most frequently stolen, <laughs> and therefore they have to be kept behind the cashier on the shelf. And I thought you might be interested in knowing who else's books were on that shelf. Uh, so I noted a few of them down. Charles Bukowski, Georges Bataille, William Burroughs, Calvino, I couldn't believe it. Raymond Chandler, Michel Foucault, Jack Kerouac, and Jeanette Winterson. Those are just a few. I can, you know, but not Jorge Luis Borges. <laughs> anyway, without further ado, Paul Elster. I suppose that means my work appeals to the criminal elements, right? <laughs> Um, I'm really not going to speak. Uh, I, I want to read some, some little pieces uh, by Borges that I hadn't known about until just uh, a few days ago when I started reading this wonderful third volume of the uh, series that Viking is putting out. This is the Selected Nonfictions, which contains essays, reviews, uh, lectures, all kinds of material that's not been available in English before. Um, I suppose most of you have read Borges because that's why you're here. Um, so I, I'm sure you're familiar with the strange, uh, playful, and profound nature of his mind. Um, interestingly, back in the 30s, he appeared to have had a job working for a uh, ladies' magazine. I think it was a ladies' magazine, a home magazine. It was called El Ogar. Uh, uh, which means home, and he wrote these little pieces um, for the Argentinian bourgeoisie about various literary subjects and film reviews, and I just wanted to read a few of these things. He did something called capsule biographies, um, and I find the prose so nutty and funny and unexpected almost at every turn. Uh, so here's an example. Uh, it's a portrait of Theodore Dreiser, the American writer. Dreiser's head is an arduous, monumental head, geological in character, a head of the afflicted Prometheus bound to the Caucasus, and which, across the inexorable centuries, has become ingrained with the Caucasus, and now has a fundamental component of a rock that is paint, pained by life. Dreiser's work is no different from his tragic face. It is as torpid as the mountains or the deserts, and like them, it is important in an elemental and inarticulate way. It's extraordinary. <laughs> Theodore Dreiser was born in the state of Indiana on August 27, 1871. He is the son of Catholic parents. As a child, he was on familiar terms with poverty. As a youth, he plied many and diverse trades with the easy universality that is one of the defining characteristics of American destinies and that once, then in parentheses, Sarmaniento Hernandez, Asacubi, As uh, defined those of this republic as well. In 1887, long before Scarface Al's punctual machine guns, he roamed to Chicago where men in bustling beer halls argued endlessly over the harsh fate of the seven anarchists the government had sentenced to the gallows. Around 1889, he developed the strange ambition of becoming a journalist. <laughs> He started hanging around newspaper offices, quote, stubborn as a stray dog. In 1892, he was hired by the Chicago Daily Globe. In 1894, he went to New York, where for four years he edited a magazine called Every Month. 
During that time, he read Spencer's first principles and with pain and sincerity, lost the faith of his forefathers. Toward 1898, he married a girl from St. Louis, quote, beautiful, religious, thoughtful, addicted to books, but the marriage was not a happy one. I couldn't stand being tied down. I asked her to give me back my freedom, and she did. Sister Carrie, Theodore Dreiser's first novel, appeared in the year 1900. Someone has observed that Dreiser always chose his enemies well. Barely had Sister Carrie been published when its publishers withdrew it from circulation, an event that was catastrophic at the time, but infinitely favorable to his later reputation. After 10 years of silence, he, punished, he, he published Jenny... <laughs> These glasses are punishing me. Uh, Jenny Gerhardt, then in 1912, The Financier. In 1913, his autobiography, A Traveler at 40. In 1914, The Titan. In 1915, Genius, which was banned. In 1922, another autobiographical exercise entitled A Book About Myself. The novel, An American Tragedy, 1925, was outlawed in several states and disseminated by the motion picture industry across the globe. To understand North America better, in quotes, Dreiser went to Russia in 1928. In 1930, he published, quote, a book of the mystery and wonder and terror of life and a volume of, quote, the natural and supernatural dramas. Many years ago, he recommended that his country cultivate a literature of despair. That's it, 1938. Um, now, there are some book reviews that he did as well, and I'm not going to read them in their entirety, but, for example, the first paragraph of a review of something by André Breton and Diego de Rivera, collaboration, I thought was um, also very to the point. Uh, the title is A Grandiose Manifesto from Breton. Twenty years ago, there were swarms of manifestos. Those authoritarian documents rehabilitated art, abolished punctuation, avoided spelling, and often achieved solecism. If issued by writers, they delighted in slandering rhyme and exculpating metaphor. If by painters, they defended or attacked pure color. If by composers, they worshipped cacophony. If by architects, they preferred the humble gas meter to the Cathedral of Milan. Each, nevertheless, had its moments. Those garrulous sheets, of which I had a collection that I donated to the fireplace, have now been surpassed by the pamphlet that André Breton and Diego Rivera have just emitted. <laughs> and then it goes on. Or how about this one? Uh, first paragraph of a review of an H.G. Wells book. And as we were just told, Borges was really a tremendous admirer of Wells. But here, again, opinions that I, I don't understand at all, but he, he states them with such conviction that you almost believe that he has to be right. Um, first paragraph, except for the always astonishing Book of the Thousand Nights and One Night, which the English equally beautifully called the Arabian Nights, I believe that it is safe to say that the most celebrated works of world literature have the worst titles. For example, it is difficult to conceive of a more uh, opaque and visionless title than the ingenious knight Don Quixote of La Mancha, although one must grant that the sorrows of young Werther, or crime and punishment are almost as dreadful. In poetry, I need only mention one unforgivable name, flowers of evil. <laughs> I raise these illustrious examples so that my readers will not tell me that a book with the absurd title, Apropos of Dolores, must necessarily be unreadable. That's indeed the title of the... Um, here he is, 
uh, reviewing, and this is also very interesting, Finnegan's Wake in this same magazine in 1939. Work in progress has appeared at last, now titled Finnegan's Wake, and is, they tell us, the ripened and loosened fruit of 16 energetic years of literary labor. I have examined it with some bewilderment, have unenthusiastically deciphered nine or ten calembours, and have read the terror-stricken praise in the NRF and the TLS. The trenchant authors of those accolades claim that they have discovered the rules of this complex verbal labyrinth, but they abstain from applying or formulating them, nor do they attempt the analysis of a single line or paragraph. I suspect that they share my essential bewilderment and my useless and partial glances at the text. I suspect that they secretly hope, as I publicly do, for an exegetical treatise from Stuart Gilbert, the official interpreter of James Joyce. It is unquestionable that Joyce is one of the best writers of our time. Verbally, he is perhaps the best. In Ulysses, there are sentences, there are paragraphs that are not inferior to Shakespeare or Sir Thomas Brown. In Finnegan's Wake itself, there are some memorable phrases. This one, for example, which I will not attempt to translate, beside the rivering waters of, hither and thithering waters of, night. In this enormous book, however, efficacy is an exception. Finnegan's Wake is a concatenation of puns committed in a dreamlike English that is difficult not to categorize as frustrated and incompetent. I don't think that I am exaggerating. Amaza in German means ant. Joyce, in work in progress, combines it with the English amazing to coin the adjective amazing, meaning the wonder inspired by an ant. Here's another example, perhaps less lugubrious. Joyce fuses the English words banister and star into a single word, banister, that combines both images. Jules Lafargue and Lewis Carroll have played this game with better luck. Um, then last of all, I wanted to read <coughs> one of his film reviews, and it's a film I'm sure you all know, Citizen Kane. And here is Borges writing about it in 1941. Citizen Kane, called The Citizen in Argentina, has at least two plots. The first, pointlessly banal, attempts to milk applause from dimwits. A vain millionaire collects statues, gardens, palaces, swimming pools, diamonds, cars, libraries, men, and women. Like an earlier collector, whose observations are usually ascribed to the Holy Ghost, he discovers that this cornucopia of miscellany is a vanity of vanities. All is vanity. At the point of death, he yearns for one single thing in the universe, the humble sled he played with as a child, exclamation mark. The second plot is far superior. It links the coalette to the memory of another nihilist, Franz Kafka, a kind of metaphysical detective story. Its subject, both psychological and allegorical, is the investigation of a man's inner self through the works he has wrought, the words he has spoken, the many lives he has ruined. The same technique was used by Joseph Conrad in Chance, 1914, and in that beautiful film, The Power and the Glory, a rhapsody of miscellaneous scenes without chronological order. Overwhelmingly, endlessly, Orson Welles shows fragments of the life of the man, Charles Foster Kane, and invites us to combine them and to reconstruct him. Forms of multiplicity and incongruity abound in the film. The first scenes record the treasures amassed by Kane, and one of the last, a poor woman, luxuriant and suffering, plays with an enormous jigsaw puzzle on the floor of a palace that is also a museum. At the end, we realize that the fragments are not governed by any secret unity. 
The detested Charles Foster Kane is a simulacrum, a chaos of appearances. A possible corollary, foreseen by David Hume, Ernst Mach, and our own Macedonio Fernandez. No man knows who he is. No man is anyone. In a story by Chesterton, the head of Caesar, I think, the hero observes that nothing is so frightening as a labyrinth with no center. This film is precisely that labyrinth. We all know that a party, a palace, a great undertaking, a lunch for writers and journalists, an atmosphere of cordial and spontaneous camaraderie are essentially horrendous. Citizen Kane is the first film to show such things with an awareness of this truth. <laughs> the production is, in general, worthy of its vast subjects. The cinematography has a striking depth, and there are shots whose farthest planes, like pre-Raphaelite paintings, are as precise and detailed as the close-ups. I venture to guess, nonetheless, that Citizen Kane will endure as certain Griffith or Padovkin films have, quote, endured, films whose historical value is undeniable, but which no one cares to see again. It is too gigantic, pedantic, tedious. It is not intelligent, though it is a work of genius, in the most nocturnal and Germanic sense of that bad word. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much, Paul. That was wonderful. Um, I should mention that Maria Kodama has arrived, and uh, she came straight from the airport, and she's here with us this evening. So we're very happy to have you, Maria. Um, our next speaker is my personal hero of the day, uh, called at the very last moment when Claire Massoud, who was supposed to be here, fell desperately ill. Um, Brad was going to demand a note from her doctor, but we finally decided to take her word for it. Maureen Howard has nobly stepped in at the last moment, and we're extraordinarily grateful and extraordinarily fortunate. Um, Maureen, as I'm sure most of you know, is the author of seven novels, uh, most recently A Lover's Almanac, which came out last year. I'm sure many of you saw reviews of it. And three of her novels, Grace Abounding, Expensive Habits, and Natural History, were all finalists for the Penn Faulkner Award. And her memoir, Facts of Life, received the National Book Critics Circle Award. Uh, she is also the recipient of an Academy Award in Literature from the American Academy of Arts and Letters. Uh, Maureen has also taught fiction writing at many, uh, a number of different universities. And she tells me that she has always made Borges mandatory reading for her budding fiction readers. Uh, she feels he is essential. Uh, so without further ado, Maureen. Um, I'm a stand-in, so you'll have to bear with me. Um, the translators who are here tonight, famous and wonderful translators, um, uh, will also have to bear with my pronunciation of foreign words. My, I translate from um, simple Irish-American into demotic New Yorkese, and uh, that's about the strength of my um, pronunciation of foreign languages. So I've decided to read uh, first a story with a Borge the Borgesian heroine, Emma Zunz. 
a story that I'm sure many of you know. Amazons. On January 14, 1922, when Amazons returned home from the Tarbuch and Lowenthal weaving mill, she found a letter at the far end of the entryway to her building. It had been sent from Brazil, and it informed her that her father had died. She was misled at first by the stamp and the envelope. Then the unknown handwriting made her heart flutter. Nine or ten smudgy lines covered almost the entire piece of paper. Emma read that Signor Mayer had accidentally ingested an overdose of veronal and died on the third instance in the hospital, hospital at Bage. The letter was signed by a resident of the rooming house in which her father had lived, one Fane or Fine, in Rio Grande. He could not have known that he was writing to the dead man's daughter. Emma dropped the letter. The first thing she felt was a sinking in her stomach and a trembling in her knees, then a sense of blind guilt, of unreality, of cold, of fear, then a desire for this day to be passed. Then immediately she realized that such a wish was pointless, for her father's death was the only thing that had happened in the world, and it would go on happening endlessly forever. She picked up the piece of paper and went to her room. Furtively she put it away for safekeeping in a drawer, and as though she somehow knew what was coming, she may already have begun to see the things that would happen next. She was already the person she was to become. In the growing darkness and until the end of the day, Emma wept over the suicide of Manuel Mayer, who in happier days gone by had been Emmanuel Zunz. She recalled summer outings to a small farm. She recalled or tried to recall her mother. She recalled the family's little house in Lanus that had been sold at auction. She recalled the yellow lozenge of a window, recalled the verdict of prison, the disgrace, the anonymous letters with the newspaper article about embezzlement of funds by Teller. Recalled, and this she will never forget, that on the last night her father had sworn that the thief was Lowenthal. Lowenthal, Aaron Lowenthal, formerly the manager of the mill and now one of its owners. Since 1916, Emma had kept the secret. Perhaps she shrank from it out of profane incredulity. Perhaps she thought that the secret was the link between herself and the absent man. Lowenthal didn't know that she knew. Amazons gleamed from that minuscule fact a sense of power. She did not sleep that night, and by the time the first light defined the rectangle of window, she had perfected her plan. She tried to make that day, which seemed interminable, to be like every other. In the mill, where rumors of a strike were, uh, were posted, Emma declared, as she always did, that she was opposed to all forms of violence. At six, when her workday was done, she went with Elsa to a women's club that had a gymnasium and a swimming pool. They joined. She had to repeat and then spell her name. She had to applaud the vulgar jokes that accompanied the struggle to get it correct. She discussed with Elsa and the younger of the Kronfuss girls which moving picture they'd see Sunday evening, and then there was talk of boyfriends. No one except Emma expected Emma to have anything to say about that. In April, she would be 19, but men still inspired in her an almost pathological fear. Home again, she made soup, thickened with manioc flakes, and some vegetables, and ate early, went to bed, and forced herself to sleep, 
Thus passed Friday the 15th, a day of work, bustle, and trivia, the day before the day. On Saturday, impatience wakened her impatience, not nervousness or second thoughts, and a remarkable sense of relief that she had reached this day at last. There was nothing else for her to plan or picture to herself. Within a few hours, she would have come to the simplicity of the fait accompli. She read in La Prenza that the Nordstamjarn from Mamlo was to weigh anchor that night from Pier 3. She telephoned Lowenthal, insinuated that she had something to tell him in confidence about the strike, and promised to stop by his office at nightfall. Her voice quivered, the quiver befitting a snitch. No other memorable event took place that morning. Emma worked until noon and then settled with Perla Cornfuss and Elsa on the details of their outing on Sunday. She lay down after lunch and with her eyes closed went over the plan she had conceived. She reflected that the final step would be less horrible than the first and would give her, she had no doubt, no doubt of it, the taste of victory and of justice. Suddenly alarmed, she leaped out of bed and ran to the dressing table drawer. She opened it under the portrait of Milton Sills, where she had left it the night before last. She found Fane's letter. No one could have seen it. She began to read it, and then she tore it up. To recount with some degree of reality the events of that evening would be difficult and perhaps inappropriate. One characteristic of hell is its unreality, which might be thought to mitigate hell's terrors, but perhaps makes them all the worse. How to make plausible an act in which even she, who was to admit it, scarcely believe? How to recover those brief hours of chaos that Amazon's memory today repudiates and confuses? Emma lived in Almagro on Calle Liniere. We know that that evening she went down to the docks on the infamous Paseo de Julio, she may have seen herself multiplied in mirrors, made public by lights, and stripped naked by hungry eyes. But it is more reasonable to, to assume that at first she simply wandered unnoticed through the indifferent streets. She stepped into two or three bars, observed the routine or the maneuvers of other women. Finally, she ran into some men from the Nordestarn. One of them, who was quite young, she feared might inspire in her some hint of tenderness, so she chose a different one, perhaps a bit shorter than she and foul-mouthed, so that there might be no mitigation of the purity of the horror. The man led her to a door, then down a gloomy entryway, then to a torturous stairway, then into a vestibule with lozenges identical to those in the house of the house in Lanus and then down a hallway, and then to a door that closed behind them. The most solemn of events are outside time, whether because of the most solemn of events the immediate past is served, as it were, from the future, or because the elements that compose those events seem not to be consecutive. In that time outside of time, in that welter of disjointed and horrible sensations, did Amazons think even once, about the death that inspired the sacrifice. In my view, she thought about it once, and that was enough to endanger her desperate goal. She thought she could not help thinking that her father had what her father had done to her mother. This horrible thing was being done to her now. She thought it the weak-limbed astonishment, and then immediately took refuge in vertigo. 
The man, a Swede or Finn, did not speak Spanish. He was an instrument for Emma as she was for him. But she was used for pleasure while he was used for justice. When she was alone, Emma did not open her eyes immediately. On the night table was the money the man had left. Emma sat up and tore it to shreds as she had torn up the letter a short time before. Tearing up money is an act of impiety, like throwing away bread. The minute she did it, Emma wished she hadn't. An act of pride, and on that day, foreboding melted into the sadness of her body, into the revulsion. Sadness and revulsion lay upon Emma like chains. But slowly she got up and began to dress. The room had no bright colors. The last light of evening made it all the drearier. She managed to slip out without being seen. On the corner, she mounted a westbound La Croix and followed her plan. She sat in the car's frontmost seat so no one would see her face. Perhaps she was comforted to see in the banal bustle of the streets that what had happened had not polluted everything. She rode through gloomy, shrinking neighborhoods, seeing them and forgetting them instantly, and got off at one of the stops on Juanez. Paradoxically, her weariness turned into a strength, for it forced her to concentrate on the details of her mission and masked from her its true nature and its final purpose. Aaron Lowenthal was, in the eyes of all, an upright man. In those of his few closest acquaintances, a miser, he lived above the mill alone. Living in the rundown slum, he feared thieves. In the courtyard of the mill, there was a big dog, and in his desk drawer, as everyone knew, a revolver. The year before, he had decorously grieved the unexpected death of his wife, a gauss, who brought him an excellent dowry. But money was his true passion. With secret shame, he knew he was not as good at earning it as at holding on to it. He was quite religious. He believed he had a secret pact with the Lord. In return for prayers and devotions, he was exempted from doing good works. Bald, heavy-set, dressed in mourning with his dark-lensed pince-nez and blonde beard, he was standing next to the window awaiting the confidential report from Operator Zunz. He saw her push open the gate which he had left ajar on purpose, and crossed the gloomy courtyard. He saw her make a small detour when the dog, tied up on purpose, barked. Emma's lips were moving like those of a person praying under her breath. Weary, over and over, they rehearsed the phrases that Signor Lowenthal would hear before he died. Things didn't happen the way Emma Zunz had foreseen. Since early the previous morning, many times she had dreamed that she would point the firm revolver, forced the miserable wretch to confess his miserable guilt, explained to him the daring stratagem that would allow God's justice to triumph over man's. It was not out of fear, but because she was an instrument of justice that she herself intended not to be punished. Then, a single bullet in the center of his chest would put an end to Lowenthal's life. Things didn't happen that way. Sitting before Aaron Lowenthal, Emma felt, more than the urgency awaiting her father, the urgency to punish the outrage she herself had suffered. She could not kill him. After being so fully and thoroughly dishonored, she could not not kill him. Nor did she have time to waste on theatrics. Sitting timidly in his office, she begged Lowenthal's pardon, invoked in her guise as snitch, 
the obligations entailed by loyalty, mentioned a few names, insinuated others, and stopped short as though overcome by fearfulness. Her performance succeeded. Lowenthal went out to get her a glass of water. By the time he returned from the dining hall, incredulous at the woman's fluttering, yet full of solicitude, Emma had found the heavy revolver in the drawer. She pulled the trigger twice. Lowenthal's considerable body crumpled as though crushed by the explosions and the smoke. The glass of water shattered. His face looked at her with astonishment and fury. The mouth in the face cursed her in Spanish and in Yiddish. The filthy words went on and on. Emma had to shoot him again. Down in the courtyard, the dog, chained to his post, began barking furiously as a spurt of sudden blood gushed from the obscene lips and sullied the beard and clothes. Emma began the accusation she had prepared. I have avenged my father, and I shall not be punished. But she didn't finish it because Signor Lowenthal was dead. She never knew whether he had managed to understand. The dog's tyrannical barking reminded her that she couldn't rest, not yet. She mussed up the couch, unbuttoned the dead man's suit coat, removed his spattered pince-nez, and left them on the filing cabinet. Then she picked up the telephone and repeated what she was to repeat so many times. Something has happened. Something unbelievable. Signor Lowenthal sent for me on the pretext of the strike. He raped me. I killed him. The story was unbelievable, yes. And yet it convinced everyone, because in substance it was true. Amazon's tone of voice was real. Her shame was real. Her hatred was real. The outrage that had been done to her was real as well. All that was false was the circumstances, the time, and one or two proper names. Thank you, Maureen. Our next speaker is Rosario Ferre. Um, Rosario writes poetry, short fiction. She's written a biography of her father, who is a former governor general of Puerto Rico. She's written uh, feminist criticism and uh, several collections of short fiction and novels, including The House on the Lagoon, which was a 1995 National Book Award finalist, and most recently the novel Eccentric Neighborhoods. Uh, she also translates herself, which I asked her about, uh, and she said, <laughs> I prefer to betray myself. <laughs> I find that extremely impressive, the ability to translate oneself. Uh, and she flew in from Puerto Rico today, especially for this event, and will be flying back tomorrow. So she's another person to whom we owe our deepest gratitude for being here this evening. Thank you. pleasure to be here. Uh, in a way, I wanted to be here because I met Jorge Luis Borges when he came to Puerto Rico in 1981, and I met Maria Kodama. I don't know where she's sitting, but I 
want to say hello. Uh, it was a, a wonderful experience, and I had this memory that I really wanted to share with you in this anniversary. Uh, he, Jorge Luis Borges was invited in 1981 to Puerto Rico, Puerto Rico to receive a degree of Doctor Honoris Causa. On that occasion, he was invited to speak at a reading of his poems. At 82, he was frail and almost completely blind. Impeccably dressed in a dark gray suit, he was led by two professors to a long table covered by a red tablecloth with a single red rose in a vase by his side. Maria Kodama usually walked everywhere with Borges like a benignant shade, her arm linked to his, whispering constantly in his ear. On this occasion, however, the maestro appeared alone, and I remember thinking it must be terrifying to walk in, into the middle of an empty stage surrounded by darkness with at least 4,000 eyes fixed upon you. The university's theater was packed with students and professors who were thrilled to meet the author of El Hombre de la Esquina Rosada, Tlon Ukbar Orbis Tertius, Funes el Memorioso, and other extraordinary stories. Every single seat of the more than 2,000 was taken, and people were sitting on the floor of the aisles all the way to the back of the auditorium. A professor read several of Borges's poems, and the maestro was asked to explain them. Borges spoke deliberately as if he were interpreting dreams. A dream and a poem were at times impossible to di differentiate, he said. Perhaps that was why he saw himself more as a weaver of dreams than as a man of letters. Mesmerized by the author's slow drawl and by the way he stared in front of him as if trying to decipher the double darkness of the stage's open maw, the students began to raise their hands to ask Borges questions. A young man who looked like a freshman proceeded to the microphone. Since Borges was already a very old man, the student said, and he was probably going to pass away soon. Would he mind telling the students how it felt to be at death's door? <laughs> what were the insights that one gained from its perspective? And had blindness given him a deeper understanding of life's mysteries? There was a universal gasp from the audience followed by a suspenseful silence. Everybody was afraid the maestro would feel insulted. Borges thought for a few seconds, and instead of being upset by the tactless question, he answered patiently and with exquisite manners. Old age, he said, a beatific smile on his face, could in some cases be el tiempo de nuestra dicha, the time of our true happiness. The animal in us is mostly dead by then, and we are left only with our humanity and our soul. And blindness, he said, slowly looking around him, blindness could become a purification. It purified us of visual circumstances. The world, which was always trying to grab our attention, became fainter. It faded away in the distance. It was a slow, not unpleasant return to one's beginnings, to the first books we read, to the first words of love we heard. But most important, 
since it had required great fortitude to go on living once you were blind, it brought back to him the memory of his own heroic ancestors. That afternoon, hundreds of students left the university theater feeling inspired. We have been made better persons, more courageous and generous by Borges' beautiful words, by his heroic example in dealing with his tragic circumstances. The next day, I was supposed to pick up Borges and his devoted companion, Maria Kodama, at the hotel to drive them to San Juan's Ateneo, where Borges was to give a lecture on Schopenhauer. The couple sat in the back seat throughout the whole trip, which took us by one of the most spectacular views of San Juan. Maria Kodama, dressed as usual all in black, sat next to Borges, in her arm linked to his. She wore her jet black hair in thick, thick bangs, which covered her eyes, and she spoke softly into his ear. She described every detail that could be seen from the car. The Atlantic's white breakers rolling towards the city and bursting against San Juan's ancient walls. The uneven cardboard rooftops of La Perla slums glinting dark green in the distance. The capital's white dome shining in the sun like a giant meringue. Dozens of mangy cats sunning themselves on a hill nearby. And Borges staring in front of him, an avid smile on his face listening to every word mixed with the sound of the waves. That afternoon, Maria Kodama was literally Borges' eyes. When we arrived at the Ateneo, Borges' lecture was a devastating apology for suicide. He talked at length on Schopenhauer's and his own pessimistic view of the world. Individuality, Borges said, was an illusion. Pain and pleasure, good and evil, where but different sides of the manifestation of the one will were really one. As he had demonstrated in one of his most famous stories, Historia del Traidor y del Héroe, I was amazed. I had Borges' speech from the day before still fresh in my mind, and I stood up to ask a question. <laughs> Yesterday, at the university, I said, you talked movingly about how a brave man always accepts his destiny. For example, when God blinded you, and you accepted blindness as a gift which added a profound dimension to your writing, how do you reconcile the idea of a universe where individual heroism is impossible with the previous concept of courage as a redeeming virtue in the face of tragedy? Borges turned his head slowly towards where my voice was coming from and stared at me with sightless eyes. Blindness is the great tragedy of my life. I assure you, there is no heroism in blindness, only pain. He said in a profoundly moving tone. I blushed deeply and sat down, utterly ashamed of myself. Borges was telling me a hero is a historic and a literary creation, a fiction of our imagination. And he preferred to be remembered not as a hero, but as a man who had experienced the deepest suffering and the most intense happiness. And I'm just going to read uh, the same poem, once in Spanish and once in English. And it's one of my favorite poems. It's called Elogio de las Sombras. And uh, it's one poem which I'm an agnostic, so I don't 
pray anymore, but whenever I feel like praying, I usually pick up Borges and, and read one of his poems. And this is Elogio de las Sombras in Spanish. La vejez, tal es el nombre que los otros le dan, puede ser el tiempo de nuestra dicha. El animal ha muerto o casi ha muerto, quedan el hombre y su alma. Vivo en tres formas luminosas y vagas, que no son aún la tiniebla. Buenos Aires, que antes se desgarraba en arrabales hacia la llanura incesante, ha vuelto a ser la recoleta, el retiro, las borrosas calles del once y las precarias casas viejas que aún llamamos el sur. Siempre en mi vida fueron demasiadas las cosas. Demócrito de Abdera se arrancó los ojos para pensar el tiempo, ha sido mi demócrito. Esta penumbra es lenta y no duele. Fluye por un manso declive y se parece a la eternidad. Mis amigos no tienen cara. Las mujeres son lo que fueron hace ya tantos años. Las esquinas pueden ser otras. No hay letras en las páginas de los libros. Todo esto debería atemorizarme, pero es una dulzura, un regreso, de las generaciones de los textos que hay en la tierra, solo habré leído unos pocos, los que sigo leyendo en la memoria, leyendo y transformando. Del sur, del este, del oeste, del norte, convergen los caminos que me han traído a mi secreto centro. Esos caminos fueron ecos y pasos, mujeres, hombres, agonías, resurrecciones, días y noches, entre sueños y sueños, cada ínfimo instante del ayer y de los ayeres del mundo, la firme espada del danés y la luna del persa, los actos de los muertos, el compartido amor, las palabras, Emerson y la nieve y tantas cosas, ahora puedo olvidarlas. Llego a mi centro, a mi álgebra y mi clave, a mi espejo. Pronto sabré quién soy. And in English, it goes this way. It's an excellent translation, actually, by Hoyt Rogers, in Praise of Darkness. Old age, the name that others give it, can be the time of our greatest bliss. The animal has died, or almost died. The man and his spirit remain. I live among vague, luminous shapes that are not darkness yet. Buenos Aires whose edges disintegrated into the endless plain, has gone back to the Recoleta, the Retiro, the nondescript streets of the Once, and the rickety old houses we still call the South. In my life, there were always too many things. Democritus of Abdera plucked out his eyes in order to think. Time has been my Democritus. This penumbra is slow and does not pain me. It flows down a gentle slope, resembling eternity. My friends have no faces. Women are what they were so many years ago. These corners could be other corners. There are no letters on the pages of books. All this should frighten me, but it is a sweetness, a return. Of the generations of texts on earth, I will have read only a few, the ones that I keep reading in my memory reading and transforming. From south, east, west, and north, the paths converge that have led me to my secret center. 
These paths were echoes and footsteps, women, men, death throes, resurrections, days and nights, dreams and half-wakeful dreams, every inmost moment of yesterday and all the yesterdays of the world, the veins, staunch sword, and the person's moon, the acts of the dead, shared love and words, Emerson and Snow, so many things. Now I can forget them. I reach my center, my algebra, and my key, my mirror. Soon I will know who I am. Thank you. Thank you, Rosario. Our next speaker is Elliot Weinberger. Um, Elliot is the editor of the Selected Nonfictions of Jorge Luis Borges, uh, which just came out. And he's been spending a lot of time with Borges over the last three or four years. Um, his, uh, he is a, an essayist. His collections include Outside Stories, Works on Paper, and 19 Ways of Looking at Wang Wei. And uh, his current work is uh, published or broadcast in newspapers and magazines in Latin America, Germany, and on Australian radio. Um, Elliot. Thanks, Esther. Borges was an immensely prolific writer who never wrote anything long. And what he mainly wrote, besides his thousand pages of short stories and around 500 poems, was nonfiction prose. There's something like 1,200 pieces of nonfiction, essays, book and film reviews, prologues to hundreds of books, transcribed lectures, notes on politics and culture, brief histories, and capsule biographies. In English, these are almost entirely unknown. And even in Spanish, only about a third of them are included in his complete works. A few hundred more are gathered in another dozen or so scattered volumes, and hundreds still remain to be collected in book form. It seems that every week I come across more of them. They are endless. Beyond their mass, what is astonishing about them is their range. English language readers already know about such Borgesian preoccupations as time and eternity, dreams and nightmares, the thousand and one nights, the precursors to Kafka, 19th century English literature. But these are merely one corner in the Borges library. He wrote extensively and without snobbism about pop culture, from Hollywood movies to detective stories to sci-fi. Decades before cultural studies, he was studying tango lyrics and the inscriptions painted on horse-drawn carts in Buenos Aires. Contrary to the erroneous image formed in his old age of Borges as an extreme right-winger, he was a courageous anti-fascist and semitophile in an era when most of his compatriots were decidedly the opposite. He is one of the very few major writers whose political writings from the 30s and 40s can be read today without embarrassment. He was perhaps the first Spanish translator of Langston Hughes and an enthusiast for King Vidor's all-black silent film, Hallelujah. He may be the first Latin American writer to seriously talk about machismo, and he dared to mention its aspect of repressed homosexuality. 
He could talk effortlessly about mathematics, Dante, Gnosticism, American cowboys, Icelandic sagas, medieval theologians, Chinese ghost stories, Chicago gangsters, and German philosophers. The book I just edited, Selected Nonfictions, was found newsworthy by both the Jewish newspaper, The Forward, and the Buddhist magazine, Tricycle. Even more astonishing than the range is the quality. Almost every page of his nonfictions is a wonder and a delight. The nearly 600 pages of the book I edited only scratched the surface. I could easily do a few more books of equal size that would, I think, uh, be equally as good. In Latin America, I've often heard people say that the best Borges, or the place where he is consistently at his best, is in the essays. The idea of a major essayist is unimaginable here, where the essay is mainly represented by certain of its subgenres, personal journalism, memoir, book review, academic criticism, and where the nonfiction work of major writers is usually considered ephemera of interest only to fans and scholars. The kind of free-ranging, non-academic intellectual essay that Borges wrote barely exists in this country, and there is nowhere outside of a few small magazines to publish them. My book, for example, has about 400 pages of previously untranslated work, and not a single large circulation magazine was interested in any of it. In contrast, most of Borges' nonfiction was written for newspapers as has been the case for most Latin American and many European writers in this century. One might say that, until his fame late in life, Borges was known in Argentina as a poet and short story writer, but actually read as an essayist. It's no coincidence that he started out writing his fiction by disguising his stories as essays. I'm also going to read a few short pieces from, uh, uh, from El Hogar Home Magazine, the, the Argentine uh, Ladies' Home Journal. Um, uh, Paul, uh, Paul and I uh, discovered five minutes before the reading that we had selected the same text. I guess we're separated at birth, you know. Um, and uh, Borges worked for this magazine for three years, contributing essays, hundreds of book reviews, and a regular feature of capsule biographies of contemporary writers. Uh, though he wrote these in a far breezier style, his subject matter was by no means modified by his audience. He talked about Benedetto Croce and Raymond Lull, Lady Mirasaki and Paul Valéry, as well as the latest mystery novels, and he left his citations from the German, Latin, French, and Italian untranslated. I'm going to read just a few short pieces. The first one is a review of a uh, completely forgotten detective novel called Excellent Intentions by Richard Hull. One of the projects that keeps me company, that will in some way justify me before God, and that I do not think I will accomplish, for the pleasure is in foreseeing it, not in bringing it to term, is a detective novel that would be somewhat heterodox. This last is important for the detective genre, like all genres, lives on the continual and delicate infraction of its rules. I conceived it one night, one wasted night in 1935 or 34, upon leaving a cafe in the Barrio Once. These meager circumstantial facts will have to suffice for the reader. I have forgotten the others, forgotten them to the point where I don't know whether I invented some of them. Here was my plan. To plot a detective novel of the current sort with an indecipherable murder in the first pages, a long discussion in the middle, and a solution at the end. 
Then, almost in the last line, to add an ambiguous phrase, for example, and everyone thought the meeting of the man and woman had been by chance, that would indicate or raise a suspicion that the solution was false. The perplexed reader would go through the pertinent chapters again and devise his own solution, the correct one. The reader of this imaginary book would be sharper than the detective. Richard Hull has written an extremely pleasant book. His prose is able, his characters convincing, his irony civilized. His, his solution, however, is so unsurprising that I cannot free myself from the suspicion that this quite real book published in London is the one I imagined in Balbanera three or four years ago. In which case, excellent intentions hides a secret plot. Ah me, or ah Richard Hull, I can't find that secret plot anywhere. <laughs> this is a review of a book called Personality Survives Death by Sir William Barrett. This book is truly posthumous. <laughs> the late Sir William Barrett has dictated it from the other world to his widow. <laughs> the transmissions were through the medium Mrs. Osborne lettered. In life, Sir William was not a spiritualist, and nothing delighted him more than to prove the falsehood of some psychic phenomenon. In death, surrounded by ghosts and angels, he remains unpersuaded. He believes in the other world, of course, quote, because I know that I am dead and because... <laughs>